A Million Likes is brought to you by Willa. Willa helps creators and freelancers get paid super fast for their brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30, 60, or even 90 days for payments. Using Willa, you press a button and get paid immediately. Every time and for every client. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. Download from the App Store today and check it out for yourself. Born in Chicago, Illinois, I'd say growing up, I had a pretty stable family. Not in the sense that there was this nurturing environment where my parents created positive routines and provided us with a community of support, but that I knew that my parents were in it together for better or worse. And there was a lot worse. This is a story of a girl and a boy about sexual assault, three kids, a broken marriage that managed to heal, and how me and my husband, Stephen, created Millennial Mary with 400,000 followed on Instagram. I had two older sisters, and just a few years after myself, my parents welcomed a baby boy. Early on, we lived in the heart of Chicago on Racine in a two-bedroom apartment. The neighborhood was busy. It was filled with children who would regularly come by to play, and we spent a lot of our afternoons jumping from building to building. Because it wasn't the safest place to raise a family, due to the neighborhood drug dealers, addicts, and after a group of older boys made inappropriate advances to me at just five years old, my parents had had enough and made the move to the suburbs. My father had started working as a truck driver, and the family status had moved to middle class. I can remember walking into our new home. After coming from our tiny two-bedroom apartment, this three-bedroom, one-bath home felt spacious. But of course, I still had to share a room with my sisters. At that time, Dalton, Illinois, which is now known for its violence, was about 80% white and 20% black, with us being the new black family that had just moved in. Soon after, white flight began. When we would then start to see a lot more faces that looked like ours. We grew up in a liberal but religious household. My siblings and I could have a very open dialogue with our parents. If I didn't agree with something, I was able to voice my opinion, even if that meant getting something thrown my way because my mom didn't like what I had to say. We rarely had to ask to venture off outside or have a friend come over which I'm sure contributed to my independence very early. But my mother believed in making sure we attended church every Sunday and choir practice every Saturday. There was a vacation Bible school every summer, but my father never came. Usually, he was out on the road. When he was home, he just didn't feel the need. That was a regular occurrence in my life. My mother desperately wanted him to be involved in her day-to-day life, but they never seemed to be on the same page. From a young age, my mother suffered from a gambling addiction. After the stress of raising four children practically alone, late nights at the casino were a norm, making it very hard for my father to trust my mother with money. She'd even enlist my sister into breaking into my father's safe. He'd kept it home to essentially steal money and go to the boat, also a casino. 
There would be times we knew if she hadn't come home, she lost it all. And of course, my father would be livid. This was one of those relationships where my father paid all of the bills and my mother recovered just the tiny ones when she worked. But over time, he used that authority and love of money against her, giving her allowances and sometimes making her beg for the things she wanted. Yes, her bills were paid, but the disappointment, anguish, and tired looks on her face made me realize right then, at 12 years old, I'd want something different for my life. I didn't want to get married. And if I did, I would definitely be an independent woman, wife, and thinker. I'd be a partner with my spouse, and I'd raise my future children that way as well. As chance would have it, in June of 2000, I'd meet my future husband, Stephen, walking down the street. I remember he was dressed in basketball shorts, a do-rag, and a cringe-worthy white tee since he just came from playing basketball with friends. If you can imagine it, it was like a scene straight out of Kelly Rowland and Nellie's Dilemma. And in early 2000 fashion, way before either of us had a cell phone, we had a little playful banter next to the train tracks that kept me up most nights. He asked me for my phone number, but being the independent woman that I am, I politely declined and asked for his. Nothing like a bit of shock on a teenage boy's face. When I finally called, a whole two days later, we talked all night, and that would be a regular thing throughout high school. I was, I'd say, a pretty well-liked student. I was quiet, and you could say an overachiever. So by the time I had gotten to high school, it was a little odd for people to see me and this loudmouth guy together. He was even there for me at one of the worst times in my life. I've always been a laid-back type of girl who didn't care about nails, hair, dresses, or anything. Baggy clothes, watching sports, and hanging with my friends, girls or guys, was my thing. Thinking back, I guess I could have said I was a little naive hanging with a group of guys. But I thought I was with a friend and that I was in a safe space. His home. His sister and her friend were upstairs, so it should have been like any other time we hung out, right? This time, I was wrong. As kids, we've all had those moments of underage drinking, and in my instance, the older guy in the group put something to mind. And the person who should have been there to be my friend and stop what was about to happen next decided he wanted to impress those friends instead. He would be the one to pin me down on the bed, allowing each one of his friends to take a turn while I cried for help. Even when his sister did come down, they all tried to figure out what to do with me since I would likely go to the police. I was so scared. Who knew what they would do next? Thankfully, they had some sense of decency and dropped me off at my back door before my sister found me and rushed me to the hospital. Like many women or girls who've gone through a traumatic experience, over time, I tried to push that memory out of me. The pain, betrayal, the court proceedings, not to mention still having to see that same person who was supposed to be my friend in those halls at school. 
The person who was there after that pain was Steven. I felt like a shell of myself. None of my friends knew how to interact with me. My parents didn't even really know how to talk to me after that experience. To this day, my mother has never brought it up. Steve understood me. He wanted to fight for me, accepted me, and didn't look at me like damaged goods, but someone who could conquer anything, even though I now felt broken. It would then be my senior year of high school when I found out I was expecting. It came as a surprise to both myself and Steve, and with him already off at college, he was not sure he was prepared to become a father. At the time, I had very bad all-day sickness and basically missed a semester of school, causing many of my AP teachers and my mother to become worried about my future. I even had a teacher recommend I get an abortion so that I didn't limit my circle of success. That was a gut-wrenching feeling, having someone I respected tell me I wouldn't end up anywhere because I was going to be a young, black teenage mother. I was livid, and it was the first and only time I'd been put out of class for yelling at a teacher. When it came to my home life, my mother would feel the same way. She and my sisters even told me that if I went to college, I'd be back home in a year. After all of the overachieving I'd done, they still didn't believe in me. I worked so hard the next semester to secure a scholarship to college and walk across the graduation stage, belly and all. I just knew I would have to prove them all wrong. I gave birth to my son, Stefan, just two weeks before I was set to leave for college. In true overachieving fashion, I'd give birth all natural. Yes, it was some of the craziest pain I'd ever experienced in my life. And like probably a lot of women, I vowed never to do that again in life. I think any woman is scared of how the birthing process would be. But as a teenager, I think you're a little more like, what the heck did I just get myself into? (laughs) Just two months later, as I worked my student services job in the bone, At Illinois State University, we would receive devastating news. After a routine checkup, we were told our son was not tracking properly and we need to see a specialist. The specialist confirmed that our son was visually impaired and suffered from a rare disorder called septooptic dysplasia, which is an early brain and eye development disorder only affecting one in every 10,000 births. I cried for hours as I'd give my eyesight just so he could have his in an instant. I couldn't help but think I'd made my life so much harder. I was bombing at school. Yes, I'd been smart before, but college was different. Huge classes, more work, and of course, I had a newborn who acquired occupational, visual, and developmental therapy four days a week. It was all too much. Plus, The therapists didn't seem like they knew what they were doing. So after not getting the proper support and resources, I was doing just like my mom said and leaving that school after just one year. I knew I couldn't go back home. So I decided I would go back to Chicago to live with Steve's family and to prioritize my son's health care. Well, at the behest of Steve and his mother, 
he would go even further away to school. I spent my days going to speech therapy, vision therapy, and having developmental, occupational, and physical therapy come by the house as I attended the local community college before transferring to the local University of Chicago State. You know, one of those universities that are a sure thing. I wanted a career I could take care of my child with, so I majored in biology to go pre-med. Can you hear my exhaustion? I resented Steve for being able to live a normal college kid life. Sure, he had a kid, but he wasn't doing the everyday things like making bottles, changing diapers, and dealing with the multitude of specialists that I did. His mother was helpful, but as a kid who had been able to be very vocal in my house growing up, that wasn't the case here. So I felt like I had to take a backseat a lot of times to my parental decisions. So after getting a big handle on our son's treatment plan, I decided to join Steve at Southern Illinois University. I definitely had had enough of the long-distance relationship and, of course, felt like he should have a more involved role with our son's caregiving. He'd finally get a small taste of what I was dealing with every day and not just on a short visit. Seemed like we found out we were expecting another child right away. Because by the spring, we welcomed another son. Christian was a happy and healthy baby. But just a few months later, tragedy would strike us when Steve lost his brother in a drunk driving accident. And my parents had separated. He was heartbroken. And so was I. Hi, this is Steve from Millennium Mary. Hope you enjoy getting to know some of your favorite creators on this season of A Million Likes. Check out the previous episodes wherever you normally listen to podcasts and stay tuned for season two. Steve was slated to graduate just weeks away and had lost one of the closest people to him. It was a very hard time. At this time, Steve's younger sister, opted to attend her last year of high school with us. And just so she didn't have to make such a big change alone, we also took guardianship of Steve's younger cousin, who was in the same grade. So we were two college kids with two kids and two teenage girls. While there were many nights spent trying to discipline four kids, we had a lot of fun together and grew a lot together through our grief. To move forward, Steve thought this was the perfect time to propose. So at his graduation party, he got down on one knee in front of his entire family and asked me to become his wife. I instantly said yes, because we'd already been through so much together and felt as if we can get through anything. What way would any 21, 22-year-olds want to celebrate? Hopping on our first plane ride ever together and headed to Vegas, baby. It would only be six months later when we would use my spring break to say our I do's back in Chicago in what was a cafe in the front and a small banquet space in the back. Dressed in a simple $99 white David's bridal gown, we said our vows in front of roughly 30 people. It was intimate with only family members, but something I wouldn't change because it reassured me that it was us against the world. Our reception was at Steve's aunt's house where we ate soul food and cut our three-tiered wedding cake. We had to get back to school, so our honeymoon was sponsored by my mom, 
who worked at the Sivers Hotel in Frankfort, Illinois. In true wedding night story fashion, we got a flat tire on our way there. So we were on the side of the road in our wedding attire until a family member rescued us to switch cars. Imagine transferring all of this wedding stuff on the side of the road. (laughs) It was cold, but an adventure nonetheless. We were so happy when we got to our room, though. This was one of the places in Chicago that if you had a special night plan, you had to go there. Once I graduated, we moved back to Chicago and moved in with his parents and sister to start moving forward with our lives. Steve has started a clothing line called Fineo Rio to honor his baby brother. So once we got back, it was full steam ahead. I was also hit with the shock of having to return to school to finish a couple of courses since the courses I had put on pause right after having our second son would not be forgiven, like I was previously told. So I had to leave my little family and headed to stay in a studio apartment for an entire semester. Over the course of those months, Steve and I have found ourselves getting a little distant. I mean, what newlyweds who didn't live together and experienced totally different lives wouldn't? He worked and was busy with the clothing line and another gig, which was party promotion. Finally, the semester and graduating with my biology degree was over. It was a chance for us to start again. And yes, you guessed it. Almost immediately, I was pregnant. But while I settled back into mom-wife and the daycare business role, Steve kept up with his nightlife. While it started as something very positive, it became an excuse in my eyes to spend long nights out partying, running away from his responsibilities at home. It was so bad that even at the birth of our third child, he left the hospital that night to go to a party. I was furious. It felt like I was alone, and hanging with the guys was more important than what was at home. I began to feel that I was exactly what my teacher had said years ago, a failure. I was listening to all the advice the women I knew were giving me. I cooked, I cleaned, I gave sex when asked, I made sure he didn't become addicted to pornography, I monitored the finances but hardly ever touched his account. If I'm being a bit honest, I was trying to fit the description of what everyone around me told me was a wife. I've been listening to the same people since a young teen, and now as a new wife and mother of three, it just didn't feel right. I'd been failing at my brand new marriage. I'd not gotten any closer to becoming a doctor because after changing schools four times and taking care of three children now, one with a disability, and I was a shell of my former self, it was true. I was on the road to becoming another statistic, and the person that I felt had my back through anything didn't seem to care. After our daughter was a few months old, I had the feeling that too many late nights would lead us down a road that we might not be able to recover from. So I did it. I looked through his phone and I saw a series of DMs of some flirtatious messages from someone he'd met out while partying, ending with her inviting him out for the night. That night. It hit me. Right then. This was not the marriage I'd envisioned. I was starting to repeat my parents' relationship. I was prepared to call it quits right then. As I saw him walk out the door, I contemplated confronting him. But instead, 
I prayed. Less than 20 minutes later, he was returning back into the house, very irritated. I didn't know what brought him back so fast, so I cautiously asked him what was wrong. He had run over some weird thing attached to his car, and it ruptured his tire. I know some people don't believe in divine intervention or anything like that, but I couldn't help but feel as if I had this opportunity to confront my husband about where I knew he was headed. The tears started to pour from my eyes. I was angry. I was hurt. Let's be honest. No one wants to have those tough conversations when it comes to finances, how to parent our children, or deciding if our teenage love was meant to last forever. Were we not a good fit? Was he feeling like me? Was I not who he saw himself with anymore? I've always been more low-key, quiet, and ready to tackle any problem, while he was the charismatic visionary who lacked focus. But I was losing myself. The once independent go-getter was becoming a role-playing, stereotypical wife who was at home cooking and, so to speak, ironing her man's drawers. I didn't even care about half those things that women who mentored me said I should care about. I was unhappy. I had to ask myself, would it be better for myself and my children for me to just be on my own? Or should I be happy I had someone taking care of me like my mom said? Was I a burden? And those things needed to be shared, openly and honestly, without fear of judgment, because we were headed for divorce. When marriages fail, it's not always because of infidelity, but two people who just had different views on life and were meant to head in the same direction together. He felt I was trying to change him into the stereotypical husband on TV. Bald, overweight, overworked, strapped with never-ending responsibility and no spontaneity. He'd also been feeling like he had to live a life that his brother would never get into chance to. And so many men he had talked to about how he felt reassured him that this is how married life is. We didn't have to be friends. I'd felt neglected, uninspired, and like I'd been handling all the gender roles, typical or not, by myself. And in that four-hour confessional, we bared our souls, admitted our faults and our desires. The conversation that started with tears ended with clarity and laughter after reliving some of the crazy stories from our past, realizing we'd both been wanting the same thing, to live freely, have fun together, find ourselves, grow spiritually and financially, but felt misunderstood. I've always been big on honesty. It was something that was required in my house growing up. And the moment we were 100% transparent, we knew we were destined to go on our journey together. I know people would ask, so what if he didn't come back that night? Would you still be together? To me, the most important thing that came out of that night was that we realized we both wanted the same things all along. But our environment Fear, ignorance, and not having the right people, mentors in our life, providing unbiased advice, caused us to get to that conclusion a little slower than we would have liked. We decided to start fresh. We would go all in. It would just be us. No parents, 
aunts, or cousins making our life decisions for us. We would even adopt an honesty box, like a heads up, for when we needed a moment to be 100% transparent. We would move from our hometown, Chicago, and forge a new path together, less than a year later in Atlanta. It was undoubtedly one of the biggest obstacles I had ever faced was to see my husband for the real him and to get him to see the real me. And more than just role players in each other's lives, but a partner who could be the biggest supporter and asset. Is what kickstarted life as we now know it. Steven started life coaching school, and after telling our story and how we overcame the last few years, Steve was advised that we should start coaching relationships together. At the time, I had just found my girlier side, I'd say, and makeup had become one of my new obsessions, so much so that I had started a beauty channel on YouTube. So when he came to me with the idea, I didn't want to think about walking anyone through the twists and turns of our relationship. And I also didn't want to immediately give up something I had created alone to maybe yet again walk in someone's shadow. But after seeing him read up on so much material, his passion he had for it, and trust in my gut, I jumped on board. We had grown so much individually and as a couple. Plus, I'm honestly more of a behind the scenes kind of girl. Steve decided to focus on the coaching business full-time, letting go of his clothing line dreams he had done so long with his partners, his older brother, and best friend. My health was stable, our credit scores were amazing, and we were killing this marriage thing. Steve was obsessed with self-help and success books. He wanted an even closer relationship with our children, myself, and God. And as things would have it, we were hit with the blow of Steve's grandmother's passing and his brother-in-law getting shot. That was it. If we were going to change our lives, it was now or never. So to fuel our crazy entrepreneurial spirit, we moved to the country in a four-bedroom trailer property that his parents purchased after the success of their business. We gave our children the space they needed, and they said it would be rent-free in a good school system, so we couldn't pass that up, right? Well, it would not have a fully functional sink, clean drinking water. The great schools were actually not in the district, causing them to go to a terrible one. The internet connection was terrible and cost about $300 a month. The nearest store was 20 minutes out. And the free rent? Yeah, that wasn't a thing. Dream chasers, right? It was time to go. We had put thousands of miles on our new car and spent way more money than if we had just stayed put. And the biggest thing was that you can't run an internet business without good internet. So we moved our little family back into an 11-square-foot apartment. Less than a month later, I got the news that my father had passed away. After my father reunited with my mother, she had gone on to be a caretaker during the last few years as he suffered from dementia. I was a little relieved as he had spent those years in agony, the smallest I'd ever seen him, forgetting who I was years before. He was a shell of himself, and I was hopeful through my tears that he didn't have to suffer any longer. The one solace I've always had with his passing was that he was able to walk me down the aisle on my wedding day. Not long after, Steve's sister, 
who we were guardians in college over, wanted to start her journey and wanted to move to Atlanta. Yep, she moved in with us in our tiny apartment soon after her child joined us in our cramped quarters. And if you know her, tempers soon started to flare as money was tight because we had quit our jobs to become full-time entrepreneurs. There was a huge fight with Steve and his sister and his entire family labeled us his public enemy number one. The line in the sand had been drawn. I felt like I had let my guard down once again and I'd failed. We had to face it. There were no sales and our credit cards were paying the bills and our groceries. It was the most broke we'd been in our lives since we were teenagers. We had no business. My husband's relationship with his family was ruined and I barely spoke to my mother because of all the drama of me living with Steve's family over the years. We had hit rock bottom. Our once near-perfect credit scores had tanked, and Steve was driving Uber just to make ends meet. But we had clarity again, finally, when it was just us. As we sat wallowing in self-pity on our couch one day, we said, let's give this entrepreneur thing one more shot. We had always known from our coaching business that we wanted to work with couples. And after all we'd been through, we were sure other people would want a how-to on what not to do. And just a place to feel like they were not alone in this roller coaster that is marriage. Then Steve had an amazing idea. Let's create the space we would have wanted. Millennial Mary was born. We used our experience and our time we spent as relationship coaches to provide sound advice, ask questions, and harness the power of community to what was, at the time, not seen on the internet. Black love wasn't even really a hashtag. So we created a space to inspire, entertain, empower, and educate millennials of color to change the narrative on how we view, create, and maintain our relationships. After nine months, we had reached 25,000 followers. And then I knew we had something. Just two months after that, we reached 50,000. And then I realized we had made it as creators. We had tapped into something people were missing. And the idea of showcasing not only love, but marriage would not only be beneficial to us, but to a growing community as a whole. As we continued to grow, something incredible happened. We've had the amazing opportunity to be guests on podcasts, blog write-ups, create our own podcast, sell merch, do campaigns, clear our debt, and have the incredible feeling daily to share laughs and inspire our community. It's been an amazing journey, and I wouldn't change a thing about it because all of the things we went through allowed us to share this experience. Now, our kids are older, and we're sort of like the OGs when it comes to marriage and parenting amongst our peers. Now that we have 21 years of love, determination, and growth behind us. If there were four things I would tell anyone looking for marriage advice, number one, we before me. When you get married, you and your partner are teammates. If one person wins, you both win. There's no place for selfishness or trying to outshine your partner. Also, That means putting each other first. Think of marriage as a race to the back of the line. Each person should be trying to make the other's life easier. Number two, set boundaries. 
boundaries can come in many forms, whether that means set date nights, which you absolutely should have, alone time, or letting family members know that your spouse and your family comes first. Number three, fight fair. We're adults and we should use our words. Respect one another. Stop the name calling, threatening to leave whenever you don't like something, and be honest. Number four, don't be afraid to start your own traditions. Just because you grew up a certain way, it doesn't mean you have to walk the same path. Do what works for you and your partner to ensure you're both on the same page. Marriage gets a bad rep because we generally see two extremes. Either everyone looks perfect with a beautiful family, the big house, financially successful, or extremely toxic version where there's constant cheating, hate-filled text messages, and the breakup divorce post every other week. Many of us lie somewhere in between. Facing difficulties, but it doesn't mean it's all or nothing. Toxic or perfect. Nobody's perfect. Too often in social media now, we only see the highs, never the lows. The betrayal of overnight success, not the journey there. You have to put some work in. But success together is not impossible. You can definitely design your marriage and be very happy in your version of perfection. And that's what we showcase over on Millennial Married. A Million Likes was brought to you by Willa. Download Willa from the App Store today and get paid super fast for your brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30, 60, or 90 days for payments. Using Willa, you press a button and get paid immediately. Check it out yourself.